Hello, and welcome to episode 17 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than eight years' experience in Brazil and China. I'm excited today to bring you a very special episode of the podcast. This week, we talked to a journalist I've long admired, Jonathan Watts, who is global environment editor for the British newspaper The Guardian in London. I've been two steps behind Jonathan for years. He too worked in China for many years before transferring to Brazil, but on an earlier timeline than me. I remember how his coverage in both places captured my imagination before or during when I was just starting out in those countries. But while Jonathan is very charitable in comparing his career to mine, there's no mistaking that his experience far outstrips me. His more than 20 years as a foreign correspondent have given him plenty of time to reflect on it, and I think that shows through in this extremely insightful interview looking back at his experience. Like me, he's also, over the course of his career, shifted increasingly to writing about the environment, and it was fascinating to hear how that came about in his approach to environmental coverage. And on the whole, it's just a great conversation. Before we get to that, I wanted to plug Jonathan's side project, the Rainforest Journalism Fund. He'll tell you more, but if you're a journalist who wants funding to go do reporting in the jungles of the Amazon or the Congo or Southeast Asia, a pretty sweet deal if you ask me do go check it out. You'll find it by Googling Rainforest Journalism Fund, and the Pulitzer Center has a webpage for it. Before I introduce the full interview, here's a clip of Jonathan talking about the fund in his own words. If you're not a journalist and this doesn't interest you, feel free to skip ahead about three minutes, and you'll get to the rest of the interview. I had to find another way to do journalism or get involved in something else that could more directly address uh, the concerns that I was increasingly feeling uh, in covering the areas that I cover. And it was partly because of this, I co-founded the Rainforest Journalism Fund a few years ago with a bunch of other very good friends and excellent journalists, including Simon Romero of the New York Times, Thomas Fisherman of Desite, uh, Eliane Brum, who writes for El País. Gianni Ciaretti, Fabiano Masonavi, and since then others. And the idea was that it's really expensive to go and do stories in the Amazon, but I felt like the Amazon had never been more important. And so we set up a fund with the support of the Pulitzer Center and the Norwegian government donation for a $5.5 million fund for journalists to do projects in the Amazon and other rainforests around the world over five years. So it is journalism, but it's also promoting more coverage of a particular story. And that's been a year now. And we've had some excellent projects so far. And, you know, I hope that contributes towards more coverage of what's happening in the Amazon and more interest in what I think is an absolutely fundamental issue and a key part of the world. Yeah, I remember seeing that. It seems like a great initiative. I remember looking at it. And of course, I always look at journalism fellowships and I'm like, does this apply to me? Should I be? And then <laughs> I remember not being quite clear. What kind of people are you looking for? Are you looking for Brazilians? Are you looking for anybody? Is it mostly geared at free? freelancers or who should be looking at potentially applying to this? Uh, Any journalist can apply. A certain share of the money is for journalists from Amazon nations like Brazil and Colombia and Peru. And another chunk of the money is for international projects from journalists from other countries. I mean, it can be TV, it can be print, it can be radio, big organizations or small organizations. We put a priority on projects that are collaborations. So like the absolute 
ideal would be a big media organization journalist that teams up with a local journalist so that the story gets out both inside the Amazonian country, most likely Brazil, and reaches an international audience because it's in English as well as Portuguese. That would be like the perfect story, especially if it was on an original, interesting subject. Uh, often that's not possible to organize, take some work. So we've had projects from big media like Time and also you know, small radio stations in the Amazon. So it's a real mix. And I would definitely encourage more people to apply. We'd be glad to give more details if you contact us in the Rainforest Journalism Fund through the Pulitzer Center. They are separate from us, but we work together. Great. Yeah, no, I'm happy to have a plug in there. And put, I put up links to stuff on Twitter and on my episode description and the website and blah, blah, blah. And I'm, I'll throw it up in all of those places. Well, you heard the man. Any and all journalists should apply. And now, without further ado, here's my full conversation with Jonathan Watts of The Guardian. Thanks so much for agreeing to do this, first of all. Ah, it's a great pleasure. Thanks very much for uh, inviting me to join you. Usually, just to start, we talk about uh, where you are right now, what your surroundings are, and kind of what the past week or so of work has been like for you. Well, you've caught me at a very interesting time. I'm not at work. I'm on a sabbatical. One of the lovely things about The Guardian is that every four years, we get a one-month sabbatical where we are encouraged to do things to sort of expand our minds or pursue projects that we wouldn't otherwise have time to do. So I'm here in the middle of the Amazon in a city called Altamira in the state of Pará, and I'm staying in the house of a friend of a friend, fairly close to the forest. An hour ago, I could hear the howler monkeys who cry out loud, incredibly loudly, around about <laughs> dusk every night and around about dawn every morning. They've gone quiet. And now it's very quiet, apart from the insects are now coming alive. And their song is sort of filling up the sound vacuum. And you may well also hear some dogs barking because there's a very small community here, maybe 10, 12 houses. But everybody has a dog uh, as a sort of an alarm or security. And it doesn't take much to trigger them. So if we get interrupted, that's the reason why. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure it'll be fine. I've dealt with barking Romanian dogs before <laughs> a previous episode and it went just fine. So uh, when did you start your sabbatical? I'm coming towards the end of it now. It was supposed to start around December the 12th, but journalism being journalism, I think I didn't actually start until December the 23rd. So in the end, it actually just became a long Christmas holiday because <laughs> uh, there were so many stories to write. You know, you've set yourself a date for when your holidays start, but there's always something to catch up on. And so that's caught up on me. So I haven't quite done everything I wanted to do this sabbatical. But one of the good things is that it's allowed me a really deep immersion into a one part of the Amazon to really get to know some people, to feel what it's like to spend a lot of time here. And I'm hoping that this will be something I can build on. And I'm experimenting in a way with trying to do a slightly different kind of correspondent journalism. Having been a correspondent for 22, 23 years, I know, you, and you know, I mean, you've been a correspondent for a very long time too, that what often happens is you parachute into a story. You research it as much as you can the days beforehand. You get all the information. You try to make sure you're talking to all the right people. But if you're lucky, you have five days on a story. And so, you know, you can 
get amazingly far in five days. Oh, there go those dogs, I told you. <laughs> you can get amazingly far in five days, but of course you can't really, really get to know a place and the people. So I'm taking this opportunity to try to sort of feel what it's like to live in the Amazon. And yeah, it's been an amazing experience. And I'm hoping I can do a lot of stories that go a little bit further than anything I've done before as a result of this experience. Yeah, that sounds great. I would love to do something like that. Because yeah, my trips are always pretty quick. I think I went the longest is, you know, 10 days out in the Amazon, but you don't really get to stop and take it all in. It's kind of rushing from one thing to the next to the next. I was curious if you've been out there a long time, because when you said Altamira, I thought, oh, I thought I had seen a dateline of his from Altamira months ago. Are you Have you been going back and forth a lot to London or have you been? Yeah, I mean, my base is London. I'm traveling a lot, not just to Brazil, but to many other countries as part of my beat as global environment editor. I think this year in particular, I've had a very strong focus on the Amazon, partly because of the political situation in Brazil since uh, Jair Bolsonaro became president, partly because of the forest fires, partly because the more I look into the climate issue, the more I'm convinced that we must focus more on nature-based solutions. And I have friends and a strong personal connection here. So this isn't the first time I've been here. I think it's my third time to Altamira. So no, actually, I think it's my fourth time to Altamira. I first came in 2014 to cover the Belomonchi Dam. So there's been, yeah, you will have definitely seen my byline several times from here. Okay, sure. Makes sense. We'll get back to some stories and stuff you've worked on later on. We take kind of a holistic approach. So let's first go back, way, way back to the beginning, just to find out where you're from, like where you were born, and a little Mm. bit about what growing up was like, who raised you, and that sort of thing. Sure. Well, um, I was born in Edgware, North London. It's towards the end of the Northern Line. If you know the London Underground, it's the big, black, ugly line that cuts right through the middle from south to north. (laughs) Uh, that's often referred to as the misery line because it has so many breakdowns. And I, I sort of lived, well, I was born on one northern branch of that and I grew up from the age of three on another branch, High Barnet, and I spent the first 18 years of my life there. Although it's famously boring and sort of <laughs> suburban and dull, I had a very nice childhood on the whole. We lived close enough to a city to be able to visit when I was a teenager from the age of 15 independently to go to the center of town and everything that was available in one of the world's great cities. And at the same time, we were in a green belt. So there was a lot of forests and woods and you know nothing like the Amazon, of course. It was very tame and small, although it seemed huge when I was a kid. And I grew up there and I don't know, it seems an absolute billion miles away right now. But, I, I, you know, I'm incredibly lucky to go to a good school. And I consider myself a benefactor of a system that was very socialistically democratic. I mean, it wasn't mm-hmm. communist. It wasn't radical at all at the time. But there was a consensus in Britain at the time. And this was like the late 60s, the early 70s, when I was in mean, you know, my formative years. And the consensus was that there's free public education, free healthcare, subsidized housing. And thanks to all of those things, I grew up on a council estate, which is like government housing. My mother is a nursery school assistant. 
my father died when I was very young. So basically my mother brought me out most of the time. She later remarried. We were working class, not rich, not poor, not, not much spare money. But because we had all the basics, education, health, fairly cheap at the time, public transport, fairly reasonable accommodation, you know, I was able to thrive. And I was able to go to a fairly decent school and to then go to university. And it really gave me an amazing start in life, especially when you think back in the 80s when I went to universities, the late 80s, we still got a grant to go to university. So we were given money by the government to go to university. It's kind of unthinkable now. I have two daughters now who are both at university in the UK. And, you know, they have to run up fabulous debts to, yeah. to be there. And they can't believe there was a time when the government actually thought it was a good idea to invest in the education of the youth. But I'm totally thankful. I grew up at that time and I don't want to turn the clock back by any means. But I just think we've lost something incredibly valuable in the fact that education is increasingly expensive at a, you know, a higher education level, that healthcare is more and more difficult for people to access, even in the UK where we still have the National Health Service and where housing has become more expensive. So, Did you go on a lot of trips as a kid and what, what sort of places? Actually, we didn't go anywhere really fancy. I think I traveled abroad twice, maybe three times before I was 16. But we'd travel around a lot in the local area and we'd hear the stories that my mother would say and my grandmother would talk about hitchhiking around Europe. And so as soon as I could, when I was 16 or 17, I hitchhiked all over Europe and went to France and Switzerland, Belgium, Netherlands, Spain, and so on, and, and had a fabulous time. And it just gave me a desire to see more and more of the world. And then I, I don't know if you have the same system in the US, but we can take a gap year in between finishing high school and starting university. And in my gap year, I kind of accidentally, it wasn't my intention, but I ended up traveling around the world and it just gave me a taste of <laughs> how exciting life can be when you leave home and the fact that it's not always who you are, but where you are and that you can be a slightly different person in each place. You are fundamentally you, but your appeal to people or your, your interest in other people really can change from place to place, depending on language and cultural mores and, and so forth. So that was my first taste of that. And as a result of that gap year, I completely changed the direction of my life. I started that gap year with a plan to study law. And by mm -hmm. the end of it, I was like, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not going to study taught commercial law. I'm going to do English literature and just see where literature takes me. I was young and foolish then. I'm not sure I'm much better now. <laughs> and that sort of gave me the inspiration to sort of look a bit more widely and not just think, how am I going to get a, you know, a solid job and take a bit more of a risk? Could have gone horribly badly, but fortunately it's turned out better than I probably would have expected at that age. And where did you go to university? I went to Manchester University and it was an incredible time to go to Manchester University. I was lucky. I didn't apply for this reason, but I just happened to go at the time when the music scene in Manchester took off. And so uh, it was the Smiths and New Order and the Happy Mondays and the Hacienda Nightclub. And for a brief moment, it was like the center of popular 
culture in the UK and everybody was like putting on Manchester accents and dressing <laughs> up in Manchester style. And it was just such a fun time uh, to be there. And the city itself was trying to rejuvenate because, you know, it was the classic textile heartland of the UK with lots of old Victorian factories, all of which even at that time in the late 80s were already pretty much run down and all the business had gone to countries in Asia and elsewhere. And it was trying to reinvent itself and the old factories were trying to become kind of chic warehouse eateries and restaurants and theatres and so forth. And so there was this wonderful sense of possibility and change. And yeah, it was great. It gave me as a, a Southern Englander, a Londoner, a different perspective on life because Manchester's a northern city. It has a very different history. London's been the establishment centre for, what, hundreds, thousands of years. And Manchester, 200 years ago, was the heart of the Industrial Revolution, the up-and-coming city, the place for sort of new beliefs, new industries. So you had the non-conformist movement. You had campaigns for sort of economic liberalism rather than protectionism, which is what we had 200 years ago. And funnily enough, coincidentally, of course, but that was where The Guardian was born. The Guardian mm. used to be Manchester Guardian. And the whole point of The Guardian was to kind of promote the values of this sort of industrial heartland, which included more democracy as well as a sort of economic liberalism. And so it was while I was in Manchester that I started to read The Guardian, that The Guardian became my favourite newspaper. And at the time, I wouldn't have dreamed that I could work for The Guardian. Uh, if you'd have told me when I was 20, 21 years old that one day I'd work for The Guardian, I would have sort of laughed in disbelief and given half a chance, rip, ripped your arm off for that chance. So, yeah, it was it's a strange twist of fate. When did you actually start committing your first acts of journalism and not just admiring from afar? <laughs> well, let me see. So there was a slight segue in that after I finished my literature degree at Manchester, the first job I got was English teaching in Japan. And I spent three very happy years as an English teacher in Japan. I went out there to teach at a private language school called Ati that subsequently disbanded and there was incredible scandals. It was, <laughs> it was, it was a, you could do a whole podcast in itself on this one language school. It was quite incredible. And then, then I did go into the state school system. It was as a AET, so it was an assistant English teacher. I had a fabulous time, learned some Japanese and decided that my future, I thought, was something connected to Japan. I didn't know quite what it was. And one mm -hmm. of the things I did then was, oh, I you know, maybe journalism, that might be okay. So I sent a letter to the Japan Times, which is the main English language newspaper in Japan, saying, oh, I'd love a job, any chance I could try out. And one of the editors there invited me over and we had a chat and they were so kind. And she said to me, look, just, just send one idea, your best idea, and we'll judge everything on that. <laughs> so really hard and really hard. No pressure. No pressure. And I said, sent an idea and she wrote back and said that's really boring <laughs> and I thought right oh okay that's the end of my journalism career I mean it was really boring it was all about I don't know I, th I thought for some reason I could make an interesting story of why people sit where they sit on subway trains because <laughs> I was like watching it anthropologically
strategically. And maybe it could have been interesting, but, you know, it's not a very obvious news story, (laughs) but written in the right way. I I, I could read that if somebody else wrote that. But anyway, Miss Ishii, her name was, wasn't very Mm -hmm. impressed. So... I thought, okay, well, I'll try something else. So I went back to the UK, did an MA in Japanese studies, which included anthropology and Japanese language. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I saw an advertisement, just a note, actually, on the notice board. This was at SOAS in the University of London. Sure. And it said, the Hokkaido Shimbun is looking for an assistant to the correspondent, and you must speak German, French, and Japanese. And I thought, wow, you know. No, I don't speak German or French, but I can speak some Japanese, so I'll apply. And I turned up, I had my interview, and then the correspondent just said, oh, you've got the job. I thought, wow, wow. that's great. I must be, you know. And he said, because you're the only one who applied. <laughs> <laughs> so I got a job basically making tea and arranging interviews and organizing trips. And it was one of those moments in your life where you just feel like, okay, this is where I belong. This is right. I just loved it right from the beginning. Although I was doing sort of fairly humdrum tasks, it was just an excuse to be incredibly curious about everything. Uh, my own country in this case, because I was helping the correspondent covering the UK at the time when John Major was Prime Minister mm-hmm. and Europe was just starting to be a big issue with the Conservative Party. And we've seen where that's gone recently. And I was visiting the House of Parliament and going on the new Euro Tunnel and interviewing former Prime Ministers. And it was just a eye-opening and exciting and basically just, one, you know, one of the reasons I love journalism is just an excuse to be really, really curious and see what's actually going on for yourself. And so as a result of that, I thought, okay, it was an epiphany. It's like, right, I know what I want to do with my life. And up to that point, I've been dilly-dallying with, oh, should I be a diplomat? Should I be a police officer? Should I enter the Bank of England? And dozens of other jobs. But once I started that job with the Hokkaido Shimbun, which, by the way, is the newspaper of the northern island of Japan. So it's mm-hmm. like the Scotsman in the UK. I don't know what the US equivalent would be, but like whatever the big newspaper in Alaska is it would be like that um, right. in those days Japan was so rich that that small newspaper which had by the way more than a million readers could afford to send a correspondent to London probably can't do that anymore but back in those days they could mm-hmm. anyway thanks to them I had this moment of epiphany when I thought right I want to be a journalist um, and at that point I thought right now I know what I want to be how do I get there and so I wrote a list of all the things I needed to do my objective was to be Japan correspondent for a British newspaper and I thought right I need better Japanese I need more experience writing stories I need to go to a journalism school and I need more stories to show editors that I've done so I did all of that I did more Japanese stuff studies, did some tests. I enrolled in another MA for journalism. I started out as a freelancer, got rejected dozens of times before I finally (laughs) got my first commission. Yeah. And then a few years later, I was offered a job in Japan for the Yomiuri Shimbun, which is the other big English language newspaper in Japan. (laughs) And yeah, you know, it was a very well paid job as a copy editor. I wasn't a writer, but I would sort of clean up translations and make them seem like native English. And before I left London, I just dropped 
a letter to all of the editors of all the main newspapers and say, look, I'm going to Japan. I speak Japanese. I've done this MA. I'm young. I'm cheap. I'm willing. Have you got any jobs? And the only newspaper that gave me an interview was The Guardian. And okay. uh, the foreign editor at the time, a guy called Simon Tisdale, who's an absolutely brilliant journalist, very gruff, said, show me some of your work. Looked at a few pieces, asked me a few questions, told me I was an idiot and what I thought was going to be good story suggestions. And particularly because, I mean, he was right. He set me on the right track because he said to me, look, if you do a story about Japan, what do you want to write about? And I thought I was saying the right thing when I said, well, I want to write about politics. Mm-hmm. He said, no, no, don't write about politics. Nobody cares about politics. Write about people. Write about why Japan is the only Asian nation that is really competing with the West, uh, which was true at the time, um, obviously, right, before right. China and India rose spectacularly. And he was totally right. And he said, look, you're extraordinarily lucky. The foreign correspondent for The Guardian in Tokyo position is suddenly open. We're looking for someone. You're in the right place at the right time. Give us three ideas when you get there, and we will judge you on those first two or three stories. And that was it. I wrote about football. I wrote about TV. I wrote about beer drinking in Japan. And the stories got published. And then one thing led to another. I was doing maybe one story a week while also working full time at the Daily Yomiuri. And sometimes, yeah, finishing a night shift at one o'clock and then going home and writing a Guardian story until four o'clock in the morning or five (laughs) o'clock in the morning. So it was intense, but it was, you know, I'm sure it was the same you when you first got your break you're just so excited and so happy to have been given a chance you do anything and so yeah and so I carried on like that and then the Asian financial crisis hit and I suppose that's something else journalists need is some huge news to hit your patch and then suddenly instead of wanting one story a week they wanted two stories a day and they were willing to pay for me to sort of leave the daily yomiuri and give me a freelance contract and that was that. So I spent the next six years as the Guardian's correspondent in Japan, which was an incredible time. You know, the World Cup was there. There was the G8 summit, the Kyoto summit. And yeah, it was, you know, all started there. I'm really grateful to Japan. I always think Japan made me. I got into journalism through such an unusual route, mainly because of Japan. And most journalists, I guess, these days go through journalism school and then for a long time, at least, they'd work on local newspapers. I guess now they work more on Internet sites. And yeah, a strange route in. But I'm here 24 years later. Can't quite believe it. And (laughs) like many journalists, I still think one day somebody's going to discover that I'm not good enough to do this. And then you just think, no, come on. (laughs) It's 24 years. You can do it. was that sense of self-doubt and paranoia which i think is part and parcel of being a correspondent because you're so far away from your boss and i guess if you work in an office you can just from a glance or body language you kind of know if your boss is satisfied with your work but when you're on the other side of the world you have to kind of judge by emails or telephone calls once a week you sort of live with anxiety about whether you're doing a good job or at least uh, (laughs) i have done for a very long time and it kind of drives you on it's kind of healthy in some ways but it's one of the things that comes with the territory yeah i feel that way a lot and my boss is in sao paulo but does it go away eventually or only when you return back to london 
thought I hoped it would. I'm jumping ahead of the chronology a bit now. So I started in Japan as a journalist in 1996. And sorry, back. just just to get yes, some sir. idea, how much time passed between you starting as the assistant at the? I'm blanking on the name. The the. Yeah, how much time passed between starting at that and becoming the Guardian correspondent? Because it sounds like you were actually very, very patient, but maybe I'm imagining it was a longer period than I thought. Because for me, when I was starting out, I mean, it seemed like things were taking forever and it was very impatient to get some sort of break, which was good because it kept me hungry. But in retrospect, I look back and think, oh, it wasn't that long of a period of time. Um, but how, how long did that whole process take you? Uh, it sounds like, like my experience is very similar to yours. At the time, it seemed like forever. But when I look back, I think it was very quick. I started out with my first journalism job for the Hokkaido Shimbun in 1994. And Two years later, I wrote my first story for The Guardian from Tokyo. So in those two years, I was mostly working for the Hokkaido Shimbun as an assistant, and I was doing a night school MA journalism degree and studying Japanese and writing freelance articles and getting married and all sorts of things. So there was an awful lot going on in that 1994-96 period. How long did you work at Yomiuri Shimbun? I think I said it wrong the first time and correctly the second time. I worked for the Daily Yomiuri, which is the small oh, okay. English language version of the Yomiuri Shimbun, which is, or at least was, the world's biggest newspaper. They they have a daily circulation of the Japanese version at that time of 14 million copies. It's just mind-boggling, <laughs> mind-boggling. It's just right out there. So they could afford an English language subsidiary to kind of promote their journalism to the English-speaking world. I was with the Daily Yomiuri for two years before I got a chance to go freelance with The Guardian with a stringer's contract. So I got a set amount of money, not very much. I think it was something like £10,000 originally, what's that, $12,000, at the time, plus whatever lineage I could get. And that was just about enough to keep me going, but I had a whole bunch of other strings. At that time, I was a freelancer. I must have had about nine strings. <laughs> I was working for oh, everyone wow. and everyone. Uh, let's see, I worked for The Guardian, The South China Morning Post, The Hollywood Reporter, The Lancet, Wins In Flight Magazine, uh, <laughs> and many others all at the same time. <laughs> so I was getting wow. paid in seven or eight different currencies. It was enough to make ends meet and just starting a family at the time. My two daughters were born in the late 90s. And actually, I think I was almost never better paid in my life than at that period in Japan. But I was spending so much time just on the paperwork, sending out bills, you haven't paid me for this story, sending out story pitches to try to sell my work, following up on queries. It wasn't much of a life. <laughs> I mean, it was a wonderful journalist <laughs> life, but I didn't, not much else besides. And after the initial thrill of getting a journalism job wears off, you know, you start to get fancy ideas of yourself as a serious journalist who wants to look more profoundly at the world and do longer, deeper stories. And I thought the best way to do that was to try to get a full-time job where I don't have to do all the paperwork and the selling and the following up. And so when The Guardian offered me my first full-time post with them as China correspondent in Beijing, I jumped at the chance and 
my family and I moved to the Chinese capital in 2003, which of course was an incredible moment when China was just the economy was growing at double digits. The country was preparing for the 2008 Olympics. And there was, I think, at least compared to now, a relatively relaxed, by Chinese standards, I have to add, attitude towards foreign journalists. And so you know, we were able to travel around quite a bit and to interview a whole lot of people that I think it would be impossible to interview right now. Yeah, definitely. I was a student when I was in China in 2007, 2008. And I remember that year lead up to the Olympics and being in Beijing for the summer during the Olympics and just all the hopefulness about everything was opening up and it was the much more open, easier time to be there. The Wenjiabao, Hu Jintao era. I mean, after being in Japan, obviously you spoke Japanese and not Chinese. What was it like going in to China with a lesser degree of preparedness? Did you find it difficult or after Japan and that experience, was it easy to get going there? It's somewhere in between the two. The way I looked at it, was in Japan. I studied Japan. I'd done an MA in Japanese studies. I'd spent years there. I felt very much part of the culture. I felt like an insider as much as any gaijin can feel an insider. And I was young. I remember I looked at some of the older foreign correspondents who didn't speak much Japanese. And I just, you know, how dare they report on this country? <laughs> <laughs> what do they know? Blah, 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 blah. And then off I go to China and I find myself in a very similar situation of the people I used to criticize in that I didn't know the language. And the way I convinced myself that I could do a reasonable job was this whole idea of fresh eyes where everything is new. And I would come at it like a reader would come at it that, yes, I would be unable to be very profound about what was going on at the beginning, but I would try to convey the excitement of what was going on and just to let myself go with the flow and try to get as deep into it and travel as widely as possible. And I did study Chinese and I got to a level where I could do vox pops and fairly standard interviews. But sure. I did buy very heavily on news assistants who would be translators as well as fixers. So they were kind of like the job I used to do as assistant to the correspondent in London. They were doing that job for me, plus much better translation than I could ever have done. And I, whether by you know, necessity or because it's a fact, I came to see it as like having two heads are better than one. And I would try to use my Chinese assistants, not only as translators and fixers, but as people who could just sort of sensitize me a little bit to how a Chinese person feels about the story and how a Chinese person feels about the coverage. And, you know, I couldn't let that be the final decider, but I tried to take that into account. Not the only thing I took into account, but there's the axiom that I can't remember if it was George Orwell or someone else who said, if your story doesn't upset someone, then it's just public relations, which I think it's very glib. Um, I think stories that upset people, muckraking is very important. And I've done my fair share of it, too. And we should dig for the dirt, expose corruption, all those sorts of things. But especially if you're a foreign correspondent, you're also trying to translate and act as a bridge and inform people in another country about what's happening on the other side of the world. And if all you report on is bad stuff, you're not giving a true image of any country. And so I did try to report on the corruption in the Communist Party, the terrible human rights abuses, awful situation in Tibet 
etc etc i think most of the stories i wrote probably were negative but to look at the other side of a lot of people whose living standards were improving enormously they were getting more opportunities there was better health care in most places and the energy of the place it was just never seen anything like it before or since while i was in china i really felt like this is going to be the peak of my life and the peak of my career because everything around me is on a life and death world changing scale it's happening so fast it's like watching 200 years of industrial development taking place at fast forward on a continent sized scale right in front of my eyes and it's happening on fast forwards everything's happening like five or 10 times faster than it happened in the US or it happened in Europe and to watch this it's mesmerizing it's horrifying it's entrancing it's incredibly exciting and after nine years of watching it's incredibly exhausting and i sort of left <laughs> feeling a little bit like i was a a brake pad on a speeding juggernaut and every time you kind of show you don't want to go that fast because seriously there's big problems down the road with human rights with pollution with blah 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 you're writing all these stories and the juggernaut just keeps going faster and faster <laughs> that was part of my experience in china i think i couldn't put it in two or three phrases just because it was so complicated and i loved the place i hated parts of it i had wonderful friends i had incredible experiences i saw extraordinary things and you know i've never seen anything on that scale and i still think china really is the story it's changing the planet more than i think most people realize because there isn't enough coverage of china it doesn't go deep enough uh, and it tends to look at china through maybe old perspectives of politics which are very important but missing this environmental side of things which i think is for me part of my china experience was to realize it's all about the environment it's all about having a healthy clean place to live that's fertile that's still mm -hmm. going to be around 20 years and china utterly changed my views and it was a transformative experience and was the book you wrote which that's uh, one a billion chinese jump did that have an environmental bent to it i wasn't sure yeah yeah it's an ecological travelogue so it's 10 years old now but it's a book that goes through almost every province in China. Every chapter is a different province. Every chapter looks at a different stage of development. And every chapter looks at the environmental consequences of that kind of development. So from the sort of Eden-like forests of Yunnan and Shangri-La up to the deserts and the polluted industry of Inner Mongolia and Xanadu. And then lots of stories in between. So it's really the story of development and what that does in terms of the economy and what that does in terms of the environment. And yeah, absolutely. I think what it showed to me was that just focusing on the economy is going to screw you really, really quickly. And the world is kind of learning that now. But I think China kind of got the first hit because so much of the world's problems were outsourced to China, environmental right. problems. So all the dirty industry, all the plastics factories, the paper mills, the dirty metal refineries, they're all still there. And so China just like, oh, yeah, bring it on. We're huge. We can absorb anything. And then they've got hundreds of cancer villages. They've got terrible pollution. And this has become a huge issue. And, you know, I was in China from 2003 to 2012. And I think I partly started focusing on the environment there, maybe also because it's so difficult to know 
know what's going on with the politics. Such a lot of it, as you probably know from being there, is, yeah. is guesswork and somebody said something, said something, or just trying to analyze why this person sat next to this person instead of that person. And whereas the environment, you could go out there and talk to people and actually see what's happening. And the Chinese government and the Chinese authorities were also trying to understand what was happening at the same time. And so they were just happy one more person's out there. Well, not happy. That's, you know, I had lots of trouble too. But there was a lot of encouragement at the time. Just let's find out what is going on. What is the environmental costs of things? Oh, God, yes. We can't just keep having all these polluting industries without the cost eventually catching up with us. And so I had this hope, in a sense, that because the environmental crisis would hit China first, that China would be the first country to actually have to do something serious about it. And in some ways, that's proved the case. I think it's often overstated just how green China has become. But I think it's also true that the government there now treats the subject a lot more seriously than many Western governments do. Yeah, that's certainly true. But yeah, they just can't get over clamping down on the industry affects the economy. And they just so they can't quite give up on their heavy industry yet because of the importance to the stability of the country. So I mean, you have both sides now of their making some of the largest investments and doing some of the largest green projects. I mean, look at their electric car industry, but at the same time, they continue on with building more coal plants now and all sorts of things like that. I wrote a story earlier this year about concrete. And in that, China is the concrete beast of the world. There's, I think the most amazing statistic I came across was that China uses more concrete every two to three years than the US used in the whole of the 20th century. <laughs> and it's just mind-boggling. And the government knows there are too many new buildings, too many bridges now, and they're not all being used and a lot of money being wasted. But they're not quite sure how to scale down because the number of people who work in the concrete and construction industry in China is bigger than the population of the UK. So like, how do you just sort of like scale them down that quickly? So yeah, it's not easy. And it's a conundrum that the rest of the world is going to face. It isn't already. One thing I'm curious about, because I was talking to another correspondent, I can't remember who, but thinking about leaving China after, I think I was there six years, but that when I left, I was kind of ready to go. I kind of did have that love-hate relationship with China but I, I just kind of felt like I needed a break. And now that I'm in Brazil, I look at China and I, I don't feel the tremendous urge to go back. And maybe maybe it'll come back. But right now, I don't feel like I'm missing out in some way by not being in China. How do you feel about it? I think it's a combination of things. A big part of it is that I want to go back, not permanently, but to do stories because I'm covering the global environment beat and there is no more important country in the world than China. And yet it's become much more closed. It's way harder to get access there. And I'm still sort of keen to return. I still have a great deal of affection for China. Many friends there, very fond memories. And I'm still sort of excited about the story there. I don't want to live there again anytime soon, certainly not with the sort of repression of journalists you're seeing there now. And I left in 2012, partly because you know, I'd been there nine years. I felt very exhausted 
by that stint. And I got quite depressed about the state of the world because, you know, I really saw China as a front runner of environmental problems and how difficult they are to solve. And I could see that, right, this is what's hit China today is going to hit other countries in the future. And I really felt like I needed something fresh and different and a complete change and to look at a new model of development that wasn't so politically repressive, that was more environmentally friendly. And that's why I came to Brazil in 2012, because at that time, Brazil was going through a modern golden age, in a sense, all right. We know now just how superficial that was and illusory that was. But back then, people were talking about an economy that was about to overtake the UK, a leftist government that was investing in people and education, but was still completely democratic, and environmental policies for protecting the Amazon that had reduced the rate of deforestation by close to 80% in, what was it, 10 years or a little bit more. Um, so it seemed this a success story, a positive story. And I thought, right, okay, this is a chance to kind of reset and just try to see if there is an alternative and to hope that I was wrong in thinking that what's happening to China is going to hit everywhere. Unfortunately. Yeah, you <laughs> interesting time to get here. <laughs> I arrived just as everything started to fall apart. <laughs> you know, the year after I arrived was the huge demonstrations against the government. And then this morphed into the whole impeachment movement. And then this morphed yet again into extreme right government of Jair Bolsonaro. The economy is falling to pieces. The deforestation rate has surged. Lava Jato has exposed corruption, but created a government that appears to have connections with militias, or at least there are strong suspicions that there are some people in very high places in the government connections with militias and yeah clearly my optimism <laughs> was, was very ill-founded you know I, that's okay I don't think journalists have to know what the story is going to be they have to report on the story they see and it's a fact that every time you go off on a reporting trip you have an idea in your mind a preconception all right based on lots of research and pre-interviews and so on but the reality is never what you think it is. And I think the role of a journalist is just to try and accept it's not what you think and to write the story you see rather than the story your editor expects. And that's not always easy. But the basic premise of that is accepting you were wrong or not that you're a total idiot, but you were misguided, you were over-optimistic, you were misinformed, and then trying to work that out. And I think me coming to Brazil was a very classic case of that and my optimism about a big illusion. I have to give a, a shout out to my my predecessor and now successor, Tom Phillips, who I remember having a chat with him in Copacabana when I was just about to start in 2012. And he had been covering the beat for some years before that. And I was telling him all this. Oh, I want to, you know, look at it as a positive story, as <laughs> looking at all <laughs> great things that are going on. And he was like, ah, oh, John, 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 John. <laughs> it's not like that. Just wait till you see this and this and this. And uh, of course, he was quite right. So you come to Brazil. It's not what you expect, but it's another huge story after one after another from uh, Olympics, impeachment, uh, World Cup, all, all this. How long did you stick around in Brazil? I was in Brazil from 2012 till 2017. So five years. And what a five years that was. 
definitely. So 2017, you decide to move back to London. At that point, you'd been a foreign correspondent for a couple of decades. Was it just time to go back or what led you to make that move? I was very happy in Brazil. So there was no negative forces driving me away from Brazil. It was more a combination of personal and professional reasons that I went back to London. The first was that I was offered this job of global environment editor, and it was exactly what I wanted to do. It was what I'm most concerned about. I had felt that I had run away from the subject a little bit when I left China. I forgot to mention that my first five years in China, I was East Asia correspondent. And the last four years, three years, I was Asia environment correspondent. So I'd already had an environment beat. And that, as I said, had made me very pessimistic. And I'd kind of come to Brazil, as I said, trying to reset the buttons. And I kept reporting on the environment more than anything else. But I had felt like I had stopped taking the subject head on. And although in my mind, this was more important than anything else, I'd sort of taken a post where I was also writing about politics and economics and the World Cup and the Olympics. And it was a kind of a distraction and a diversion. But I felt like I should go right back to the front line a little bit and follow what I felt was most important. And so when the opportunity came up to be global environment editor, I thought, okay, this is a chance to go back and do that on a whole different level. I also saw it as a way back. I'd been a correspondent for, let me see, by that point, 21, 22 years. And, you know, there's a point where you just think, am I just going to keep wandering until I drop dead? Uh, (laughs) Which, you know, I, I think there's been times in my life where I'd be quite happy with that or I was 50 and is this the time when I transition back I'm going to retire it's it's not in the far distant future anymore it's like 10 15 20 years away and if I go back now it makes more sense that's still where my family are most of my friends not most but a lot of my friends are and if I give myself 10 years to sort of transition back while still traveling for stories then that made a lot of sense and then the final reason was my two daughters who were little girls at nursery school when I took them from Japan to China were both starting university and they were both coincidentally going to universities in Scotland and starting oh, okay. the year that I went back to the UK. So another big reason was a chance to be close to them and help them in their transition because they'd never lived in the UK. You know, they are both half British, but for them, this was a strange new country, <laughs> even though they'd sort of visited once a year to see my parents and stuff. So it's a kind of mix of those different reasons made me break the one career rule I had ever set myself. And the only goal I'd ever set myself was never work at head office. (laughs) And then suddenly I'm back in King's Place, which is the Guardian headquarters in London. And I imagine it would be hard to find a nicer group of people anywhere in the world. Colleagues are brilliant and just very sort of open-minded, friendly people and very smart, as you'd find in lots of journalist offices around the world. But it was an office and I hadn't worked in an office for so long. And uh, my 
first year back in London was was so strange. I'd find myself just walking up and down these rows of desks in a sort of state of disbelief that one of those desks was mine, and it just seemed so unhealthy. Uh, (laughs) I've got much more used to it now, and it helps. I can travel quite a bit, but after more than two decades um, of largely working alone or in very small offices, it was a very big adjustment. I mean, I don't know for you, how long have you been away in total? Uh, Eight years, a little over eight years, yeah. So it's been a while, but nowhere on the level of 21, 22. Still, going back is going to be a big adjustment. I don't know if you've started to think about that yet. I have a little bit. I've been thinking, you know, Reuters is pretty good about you can move around. And if I go back, it doesn't necessarily have to be permanent. And I do think maybe I should do a turn in the U.S. next. But then the the concern is, well, what if I kind of get stuck there? I get... You know, so I'm turning over all these things. But at the same time, have I gotten too invested in this identity of being a foreign correspondent? And is that not healthy in some way? Do I need to go back and reground myself? I've got a lot of doubts both ways about it, but I think that'll probably be my next move. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, good luck with it. You know, maybe after eight years, it's a good time. I mean, it'd still be difficult, but I don't know. I guess for so long, I just thought I don't want to be in head office. There's too much politics and it's much better. Exactly. (laughs) I feel the same way about like, I feel like I've got a lot of autonomy kind of out here on the periphery. And I wonder if I'll lose that in some way if I go back to the mothership. But yeah, for sure. I remember when I was sort of musing about whether I should go back or not, asking one of my colleagues in the head office in London, and she said, don't come back. You should never come back. (laughs) 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 And there were moments where I thought she was so right she was so right but now it just takes time doesn't it like every new post it's like going back to a new post except it happens to be the one where you were born yeah and I do wonder like when I go back for a week or something I often feel very uncomfortable just going around doing daily things because I feel like in in Brazil or in China, if you do something weird or you act abnormal, people are just like a foreigner, whatever. And I, I have a weird kind of, I think, completely unfounded fear that I'll go back and somehow be abnormal or not be able to act right. I don't know why. I think that, well, there's some truth sure in it. I, I mean, I think the first time I came back after I was teaching English in Japan for three years, I I came back to the UK after that. And I remember people saying to me, like, why do you speak so slowly? And it's just because I got <laughs> so used to speaking to f- foreigners and especially language learners. And, you know, the jokes I'd make, I'm not, my jokes are not great anyway, but I mean, my jokes were all sort of things I knew Japanese people would laugh at. And humor had moved on big time. Humor moves very quickly. <laughs> uh, and it was ages before I could amuse anybody, any of my friends who somehow remained patient enough to stick with me although I couldn't get half of what they were talking about. So yeah, even when it's your own country, there's still a shift to be put in to adjust. It is interesting how different places affect your personality. I did feel like living in China made me more aggressive in a certain way. And now in Brazil, I'm becoming more laid back just because it's rubbing off on me. So it's good. It kind of has pulled me back in the other direction. I'm not quite as loud and pushy as maybe I would have been in China to get by in Beijing, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, and I totally agree. And when I'm thinking of the reasons why I moved from China to Brazil, there were also private, personal reasons. And one of them was just thinking, OK, 
okay, my daughters have been brought up entirely in Asia. They're really focused on education, 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 getting good grades. And I'd love them to have a little bit of Latin <laughs> joie de vivre. I'm mixing my languages and cultures, but this sort of warmth and a sense that it's okay to have fun and relax every now and again. And it's that kind of, I don't know if as a parent, if you can have a cocktail of your children of different cultures, but exposing them, I was really keen for them to see a completely different way of interacting with people and human relations and fun and warmth and love and all that kind of stuff. So I'm really happy actually about that side of things. I think they were, my daughter's both very happy that they spent five years here. That's great. That's great. And I'm sure they speak multiple languages at this point. And that's a big leg up. I wish I had learned <laughs> languages better before I was 18. And then in your current role, it seems like an amazing job and you're doing an amazing job at it because, I mean, I'm really getting into environmental reporting now, but one of the issues is, is that the environment isn't in one place and especially with climate change, it's so global. So it seems like a great position to be in, to be able to go to Brazil, to go to China, to go to all these different places to tell this global story. At the same time, having now focused in on it, I do wonder, focusing so much on climate change, say, does it lead you to become depressed at all? Yeah, definitely. I think... It, how can I put it? I mean, I wrestle with this a lot. And my overall feeling is that I'm a lot less depressed now that I'm facing it head on. And that when you try to pretend it's not happening, or you distract yourself, in a sense, as I did when I ran away from China and came to Brazil, that it's always in the back of your mind, you can see what's happening, but you're not doing enough in your mind to feel like you're fighting against something bad, bad for you, bad for your family, bad for the future, bad for the etc. You know, bad for the world. And so, you know, I write endlessly awful stories. My critics will agree with that, I'm sure. But I, I mean, awful, in, not just in terms <laughs> of how I write them, but the content is almost uniformly grim about the way things are going. And a big part of it is based on scientific literature. And the consensus there is very clear. So that, that is, yeah, it's all pessimistic. There's not much good news out there as far as the science is concerned. And then you look at the politics, in a way, it's almost worse because the gap between the scientists who are at least given the reality and facing it head on and the politics who are trying to pretend it's not happening and that we should all keep focusing on the economy forever and ever, that gap is growing, which is a huge concern. But what gives me a lot of energy and ultimately makes me not feel depressed is that I come across so many people who are fighting against this apathy, complacency, ignorance, and very brilliant people with a lot of energy. And for me, the heroes in the world right now, they're all environmental activists. Climate is what everybody focuses on. It's hugely important. It should be one of the two big focuses, but the loss of biodiversity is at least as important, I think, and could come to hit us even worse and even more quickly than the climate crisis. And it's just seeing really dedicated people trying to change things, even though they know the odds are against them. And I think that's that's exactly what the spirit of hope is. And that's where I find the spirit of hope is with people like that. And they're incredibly inspiring and brilliant. And some of them are scientists scientists, others are environmental activists, many other people are just ordinary people fighting for their homes. And these stories, are, I don't think I could ever grow tired of telling them. I'm 
extremely privileged to be able to travel around and try to hear more from what's happening on the ground and share that with a wider audience. We have quite a big environmental team at The Guardian and some very brilliant people. And I try to make my own niche to be a little different from the others in focusing more on the politics and the economics and the sort of human stories of what's happening um, in the hope that if you can reach readers on an emotional level and connect them then there's more chance that they'll feel moved enough to do something and I also feel a part of the job is inside the Guardian and inside the media as a whole just trying very hard to raise the sense of urgency because it's so frustrating sometimes when everybody's talking about Brexit which is hugely important or everyone's talking about what was on TV, which is not hugely important, but it's hugely interesting to a lot of people. And sometimes I just want to scream at everybody, you know, this thing's happening. We all need to be take it much more seriously, which, of course, wouldn't work. You know, it's finding the right way to reach the right audience. And so just trying to find new ways of expressing things, trying to find uh, new people to tell the story and new ways to tell the story. And I think that's part of the challenge. It's not just the story or an individual story. It's trying to change the culture of of news organisations where traditionally the environment is out on the fringes. And it's you stick a couple of reporters over there, but your your real big hitters, your politics team and your economics and your business team and maybe your sports team. Um, But trying to get people to realize the environment isn't a ghetto subject. It's a way to see everything else. In fact, your politics team and your economics team and many other teams should be considering the environment in everything they do. Because when you start looking at the world this way, everything changes, your vision changes. And once you start looking this way, you can't unsee. And so it's just trying to get more people talking about it and to try to get them to see things or at least consider seeing things in the same way. So I guess just to talk, we usually talk about a story or two. If there's a story that comes to mind that you're proud of and that you could just walk us through the whole process you went through from getting the idea to executing it to publication to any reaction really walk us through the the whole thing for me the biggest project of last year and the most important one was a sort of mega series we did on climate change and who's responsible and we called the project the polluters and essentially it was trying to shift the debate away from the oh i fly too much i eat too much meat it's all my fault but i can't change so i give up and i'm not doing anything and to move more towards the sort of systematic factors and the big economic factors and the really big companies who are primarily responsible for carbon emissions. And this was a project that involved more than 40 different stories, I think 20 journalists at least in five countries. And it took about nine months. And, you know, the headline of it all was that we got some research done just for us that showed that just 20 companies are behind one way or another a third of all carbon emissions and of course they're all oil and gas companies and then we really did a deep dig on the history of these companies what they knew and when and whether they shared it with the public and what was their public relations and media campaigns at the time how they sowed disinformation a lot of this has been done but i think 
we went into more detail. But what we did that took it a level further, I hope, was after doing those headline figures on day one, on day two, we then looked at which were the big financial companies who were supporting and making this possible and lending the money for new oil projects. And what was their position? And we interviewed some of them and we saw that since Paris, Paris Climate Agreement, when the world promised to reduce its carbon emissions, in fact, the big finance houses of the world had actually ramped up their investments in fossil fuels. So total contradiction and people weren't looking at that enough. Then we looked at the public relations agencies and how they work with fossil fuel companies to spread misinformation and to influence elections. And finally, we looked at politicians themselves and we took incredible data journalism work with our data journalism team. We built these climate scorecards for all the MPs in the British Parliament which had never been done before, looking at their voting records on key climate votes and looking also at which interests they had declared that had a climate link. And some of them were earning hundreds of thousands of pounds and had their own oil and gas company. And and it showed that the Conservative Party is so close to the oil and gas industry compared to the other parties. Um, And I think sometimes with a story, it's one new detail that makes it. And sometimes with a story, it's going really big on a subject that Everybody had kind of started to forget or taken for granted, but just pushing it right up there again with new writing, new voices, new information. And it's about sort of changing the culture and not just amongst the readers, but I hoped in the newsroom to try to get more people involved in a climate story so that it wasn't just the environment desk reporters, but it was the investigations team, it was the data journalism team, it was the business team and the video team team and really just trying to spread this through the whole organization you know they've got a million things to do all of them many different priorities but just the more they sort of are exposed to the subject i hope the more of them will sort of embrace it and realize that if we don't solve this then whatever else you do whether it's football or whether it's uh, politics or gardening none of that will matter so that was i think the biggest project i've ever been involved in and it yeah got a very strong reaction incredibly good traffic and lots of debate amongst politicians and yeah i hope we can do more projects along those sorts of lines and although we're definitely not saying individuals shouldn't do anything i think individuals yes let's all do what we can but the real focus of the story the real focus of action should be systematic factors and how the economy works how the politics works and why the way it's currently set up makes it almost impossible to have really good climate action and in your current job unlike before you have the title editor so in that respect now when a big project happens like this was your involvement mostly on the editing side i mean i know you wrote a a couple of the stories i believe if i recall the series correctly but are you doing more editing coaching marshalling people to this project the guardian's a very weird place in terms of hierarchy it's not always as clear as other organizations so if it's a good idea often it doesn't matter who says it and titles don't always relate to what people do so I think we have 
at least three Guardian environment editors. <laughs> may even be okay, four. yeah, I was confused um, about that because yeah. sometimes I see another environment editor and I'm like, wait, he's global environment, but this guy's environment. And how yeah. does this all work? Uh, it's There's no clear rules on it. Um, <laughs> but everybody kind of chips in. And I guess when I was a correspondent, I'd also be able to chip in with ideas for series or bigger projects. But I suppose now it helps that I'm in head office and you're there to have the discussions with all of the people all of the time. And so it's certainly the right place to push big projects along. Although these things emerge from lots of different voices and lots of different influences. So I played a part, but so did many other people. And then maybe uh, we'll just jump ahead to the last section, which is the lightning round, if that's oh. all right with you, where it's the I more fast-paced so. questions. You might well catch me out here, but I'll do my best. <laughs> I heard the one you did with Bruce, and I was just, oh, I, thought, I can't answer that one. I can't answer that one. But let's give it a try. Okay. What is a must-read publication that you look at almost every day, and it can't be The Guardian? Does Twitter count? An online publication? I read that semi-religiously before I read anything else, just because I think it gives me a huge range of what's going on in the world, especially the climate world. Um, that, yeah, that's a different question. That's, is Twitter important to you? So definitely the answer <laughs> is yes there. <laughs> Oh, God. Uh, then I guess I think I have to say the New York Times. I read that more than any other publication apart from The Guardian. Just, I mean, sure. the quality of reporting, the range of reporting is absolutely superb. Sure. I mean, I've gotten a lot of New York Times, obviously, over the interviews, but... Uh, <laughs> you did the most. I don't know what... I, I'm just trying to think of other things. They are so dominant. But is there, I guess, not, not something you look at every day, but any smaller publication you would like to shout out? Let's see. I, okay. Well, I think in my field, one of the... It, uh, and it has to be a printed publication or it can be like... I was thinking Mongo Bay. Oh, it can be anything, I yeah. I don't think it's a printed version, but I, I really like what Mongo Bay do. Sure, yeah. No, Mongo Bay is great. And I actually was never quite sure how to say it. So I'm glad you said it first. Oh, well, I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if I know exactly how to say this. But in my field of the environment, I find a lot of really original reporting in Mongo Bay. I hope I pronounced that right. But this is an incredible organization that sends out reporters somehow to some of the world's most far-flung paces and gets great stories. And I've gone to places deep in the Amazon or places like Madagascar and thought, right, I was the first to this story. And then, you know, before I go, I do my background reading and then, oh, God, Mungo Bay. They, they already had someone there. And I think they have a team of a lot of freelancers and people who just absolutely love their subject and get really deep into it. And they write at really good length so you can get a great feel for the story. Um, and, you know, I think they're on the right side of what's really important in the world and so i'd give them a shout out although don't read them every day but i find them very rich source of great stories yeah i would agree I, I read a lot of them when i was preparing to move to brazil because i could just find a lot of reporting that i couldn't find elsewhere about the environment i would be very curious to figure out how they operate i should maybe try to interview an editor there well they, I mean, in brazil the writing isn't always 
brilliant. The story digging yeah, yeah. is always fantastic. And I think in Brazil in particular, they have this incredible team of this, this Brazilian academic called Mauricio Torres and this British journalist called Sue Bramford, who has been reporting on Brazil for decades. And this unlikely duo go all over the Amazon to the most wild and wacky places and dig up incredible stories. And, you know, I don't see an outlet anywhere else in the world for what they do. But what they do is just terrific. Definitely. And then what is a publication you read or listen to or watch for fun? Oh, God, I rarely, <laughs> I rarely, I do so much reading for work. I almost don't read for fun. I kind of tend to die in front of a TV screen or uh, watching Netflix or when I just want to get away from the climate and biodiversity crisis and media and the politics and everything else then i will watch my favorite football team tottenham hotspur and it doesn't matter where i am in the world i will try to find a way to watch them whether that is back home on tv or through internet streaming in the middle of the amazon i always try to find a way to watch spurs i know it's not very erudite but we all have to escape somehow <laughs> mine is this rather long-suffering team in north london <laughs> yeah i agree i'm a big Green Bay Packers fan and it is the, probably the the best way to completely disconnect. <laughs> I guess kind of connected to that, is there any particular subject matter you read into that isn't specifically related to your job? Oh dear, this is going to sound terrible but I've started to read a lot of online columns about gardening. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know, I've, I've passed 50 and maybe it's somehow etched into our DNA that when you pass 50 you get interested in gardening. Certainly when I was 18, I would have despaired if I'd have known that I would give this answer one day. But I'm just totally fascinated by all sorts of planting, growing things, whether that's vegetables on the tiny patch of garden I have in London or here in the Amazon. I've recently been participated in a huge reforestation, uh, not a huge, it's a couple of hectares, a reforestation project. And it's just so fascinating how all the different seeds combine together and all the different plants combine together and the technique of reforestation it's not just a case of sticking seeds and saplings in the ground you have to find you have to obviously treat the ground in the correct way you have to have the right combination of seeds you have to plant at the right time of year all, all sorts of things that anyone who was born in the countryside will know <laughs> but i've been a city boy all my life so for me this is a whole exciting new area to look at interesting yeah i would love to get into gardening i unfortunately have no <laughs> yard here in my apartment <laughs> But, you've, got, uh, you've got years to go, mate. Years to go. Yeah, yeah. It, it is interesting. I do feel like the garden, the quote-unquote garden, the word garden looms larger in British society than in the U.S. Like Bruce, for example, it's no secret he's moving back to the U.K. And, he, oh, we'll find a place with a garden. And and several different <laughs> correspondents have mentioned, oh, it's i got to have a garden. And I feel like I would never hear an American say that. <laughs> oh, I've got to find a place with a garden. Um, yeah, I don't know yeah. what that is. So Someone should write a book about that. It's definitely something in the national psyche. I'm sure someone, many people have actually written books about this that I probably should read. <laughs> and then let's see, what's the best journalistic article piece 
or whatever you've consumed recently. And again, it can be in any journalistic medium and it can't be from The Guardian. There was, I think the story that I think blew my mind the most recently was in the New York Times a week or two ago by Hiroko Tabuchi, one of their environment writers. It was an incredible story of a subsidiary of Exxon that had released more methane in one spill than all the oil and gas of Norway or France in a year. And it had gone unreported, pretty much unreported. In fact, all that this subsidiary had said is that we couldn't immediately determine how big the spill was. They'd got away with saying, oh, we don't know how big it was. And it was only because I think it was the European Space Agency got their satellites onto the case and they can measure it now from space. So these companies have been presumably getting away with this for ages because the methane spills from oil and gas, particularly sort of fracking, is huge and is contributing enormously to the problems of climate change because methane is, if any way calculated, I think something like 20 or 80 times more potent a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. And so when you've got this incredible accident Accidents uh, that are unmeasured and unreported by oil companies. It just really makes you realize you can't trust these people at all and that they need to be much more closely monitored. And the path of deregulation, which is what all businesses want, is really just a path to allow people to get away with murder. So kudos to New York Times for being the first to this story and even more kudos to the space agency that discovered it. I mean, I was blown away by their recent piece about the methane leaks with the the videos of it, the infrared or whatever videos, because it's something I'd heard about, I'd read about, it's been written about, but it's this idea that just seemed so ripe for the taking. Like, how could the Times have been the first to have thought to do this? But it was by far the most compelling way to tell that story that otherwise people read and they thought, oh, whatever, methane leaks. Uh, yeah, yeah no, they're doing some pretty I great work. That. That was also very powerful. And just when you thought you haven't got enough to worry about already, suddenly these methane leaks, you realize they're way bigger than anyone had realized. And it's just, I suppose that's what journalism is all about, though, isn't it? Is spotting these things. And then it's up to others to deal with them, although there aren't enough people actually responding anymore. Homestretch, if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? Ernest Hemingway, just because he's from a different age. And I would love to have seen all the things that he saw at the time that he saw them and to live the kind of wildlife he lived, even though I disagree with his approach to so many different things. And in so many places I've gone to, there's a sort of memory of Ernest Hemingway, whether that's in Stresse in Italy or in remote region of China or Haiti, some hotel or Cuba, where he used to live. He's a character from history that seems larger than life and who fascinates and horrifies me. But I think he really got out there and saw the world and tried to find what meaning in the world. I'm not sure he succeeded, but I think he was at a lot of the great and interesting stories in the world at a very interesting time. I would agree. Yeah, definitely. And he had a pretty good time. Well, uh, I think until the end, at least he had a pretty good time doing it. Yeah, no, he, he lived big, didn't he? And his last days in Cuba, if you visit his home, I don't know if you've ever been there. That's incredibly sad to see how a great man sort of literally wasted away and ended up killing himself. But I, I think he probably, after living so big for so long, it must have been very hard to literally start shrinking in a 
because there's this chart on the wall where he marks his height oh, wow. uh, and uh, or weight or I can't remember exactly what it is and he literally diminishes and that must have been incredibly painful for someone who was all about being larger than life right yeah wow that's heavy uh what is your favorite film book tv or other media property about journalists and why i will go back a bit further i was thinking of the quiet american because i love graham green but i think i'll go back even further to scoop by evelyn war a British writer who writes this incredible parody of what it is to be a foreign correspondent and how ridiculous is the premise that you can just arrive somewhere, sum up the situation, and by dint of your experience, your cultural background, the fact you work for a big newspaper, decide what's really going on. And it's a book that's incredibly funny and incredibly dark and has, of course, like all good parody, is based on the truth. And this, for those who haven't read it, it's about a very inexperienced journalist at a very powerful newspaper who goes off to cover a war in Africa that actually isn't taking place, but he manages to start it. And I think it's been several times in my career when I've just felt so ridiculous and also but so responsible that for some strange reason due to international politics and economics, we are often in a position of great influence and it can be absurd. And I remember once being in North Korea and I was at the time one of only two journalists who'd been in Pyongyang for months and it was one of periodic nuclear crises. And I reported on a drill that they'd had in Kim Il-sung Square, an air raid drill where people were sort of running into the shelters and preparing for nuclear war. And I reported this and, and it was a drill and I reported it as a drill. But because it was so rare to have a journalist there at the time, it was on the front page and Google and everyone else played it up enormously. And then a couple of days later, I went to see an English language teacher in Pyongyang and she said, oh, I've been told everything from my mother back home home and I have to ask you uh, is is there going to be a war in the next couple of days and I was no that's not what I meant to say was, <laughs> but just thinking that you can have unexpected consequences of your stories or if there aren't lots of people out there writing and checking you could cause incredible damage in your stories and so, so always keeping that in the back of my mind well i take this job incredibly seriously sometimes too seriously i guess there's an element of enormous responsibility but also enormous absurdity about the positions we sometimes find ourselves in as foreign correspondents yeah i really need to read scoop many people have talked about it and i know it's this seminal work especially for foreign correspondents let's see what is one thing that most people don't know about you uh, I don't know. Uh, let's see. I have really big feet. Would, would that count? I'm sure nobody even <laughs> wants to know that about me. But, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a distinctive part of my character that probably doesn't come out in my life. <laughs> Definitely not. Okay, I'll take it. And then qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? Whoa. When I was younger, I always wanted to be, first of all, a football player. If I couldn't be a football player, I wanted to be a spy uh, like James Bond. 
and then came journalism. So I'm already third choice. I thought about being a diplomat for a while. Quite glad I didn't get that job. And for some time, I've, I've thought about being a llama farmer. Uh, but I realize, <laughs> I realize that llama farming is probably not very realistic, and I would be a very terrible llama farmer. I'd be very enthusiastic, but I suspect I wouldn't give the llamas the care and attention they deserve. <laughs> Specifically llama? No alpacas or guanacos? Or... I'm a broad church kind of guy. I would take uh, alpacas, vicunas, any camelids. <laughs> My nickname at university, God knows why, was Llama Lad. And <laughs> it stuck. Actually, it was Llama Man. It was Llama Man. Later became Llama Lad sometimes because that was my email address, which I still use from time to time. And then when Facebook came along, I collected all the images of llamas I could find. And I have this <laughs> llamography compendium on my Facebook page. And then it became very political, strangely, when I was in China, because I don't know if oh, you remember. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but just coincidentally, the whole like internet censorship issue started bizarrely focusing on the word for alpaca which is shaunima um right and this which <laughs> means something incredibly offensive in chinese as well as meaning alpaca and so all the uh, internet text, users so, it's, in China, so it's it yeah. means fuck your mother right yeah. uh I'm, okay i wasn't sure what the parameters were on <laughs> offensive language on your podcast but yes it means fuck your mother and this was the most censored phrase in china so it became like a mark of resistance for everybody who wanted internet freedom and so they would use homonyms to get around barred words so they would say alpaca when they actually meant fuck your mother uh, and so the alpaca just started to appear everywhere as this symbol of internet resistance against censorship and so suddenly you know my much longer held interest in llamas and alpacas meant that i had this collection of images of rebel beasts and it continued a bit these days although i must admit i think alpacas and llamas have gone too mainstream now they're everywhere <laughs> I still love them but it was a niche all those years ago sure yeah it's probably good it wasn't a physical collection you would have been like people talk about shipping their books out of china and the <laughs> certain books disappear the llamas would have all disappeared um, <laughs> And I think that also strikes out the one thing most people probably don't know about you. Okay, um, yes. Yeah, yeah, that would... And yeah, that's it for the interview then. Thanks Sorry. a lot again for, for taking all the time to do the interview. I know we've run a bit long, but I really appreciate you talking to me. Uh, it was a great pleasure and really interesting to talk to someone who's spent time in China and spent time in Brazil, being a foreign correspondent. And yeah, it's uh, been a pleasure. Thanks to you and thanks to all your listeners. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Jonathan Watts, The Guardian's global environment editor. I'll post links to some of Jonathan's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. 
beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a positive review saying what you like about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. You can find us on Twitter at at ForeignPod or tweet about us with the hashtag hashtag ForeignPod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash ForeignPod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, February 9th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Correspondence.